I also want folks to understand the ruthlessness with which the ruling class has employed violent techniques to get its way. And I'm talking about uh, firings and blacklistings and whippings and kidnappings, drive out operations and uh, incarceration and even murder. We know that exploitation is built into capitalism, but I want to make a case that terrorism is too. From the Gilded Age to the 1920s, employers and their allies used terrorism to control workplaces and communities. This week, our colleagues at the Heartland Labor Forum radio show talked to Chad Pearson, author of Capital's Terrorists, Klansmen, Lawmen, and Employers, to find out how terrorism disempowered the working class and its unions. And we have two from Labor History in Two. First, the year was 1908. That was the day that three labor leaders of the American Federation of Labor, Samuel Gompers, John Mitchell, and Frank Morrison, were sentenced to jail terms for calling for a boycott against the Buck Stove and Range Company. Then, the year was 2008. That was the day that Walmart stores agreed to settle 63 wage and hour lawsuits across 42 states for at least $352 million and possibly as much as $640 million. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today. The musical intro tonight is the theme song for the television series, The Virginian. Percy Faith was the composer and captured the spirit of the Western frontier. Or did it really? I'm Chris Mann, and I'll be your host tonight. Tonight, we'll spend time with author Chad Pearson, who researched and wrote the book, Capitals, Terrorists, Klansmen, Lawmen, and Employers. Mr. Pearson dug deeply into business associations and other organizations that have conspired to use terrorism to squelch unions in the name of law in order. Yes, local, state, national leaders, lawyers, prominent businessmen, judges, newspaper editors, all have been guilty of using terrorism against the effort to organize unions. The irony is that the terrorism is done under the guise of preserving law and order. The tactics used were kidnapping, murder, incarceration, blacklisting, burning homes, hangings, ostracism, ordering people to live elsewhere, public floggings, intimidations, threats, and many other tactics that serve to put people in their place. The law and order methods used were designed to keep people obedient and working hard so that the industries served would remain in place and increase profits. Welcome, Chad. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very honored. Chad, your book is very detailed and well-structured and chronologically ordered so that we will be going from the roughly 1870s through the 1920s um, in the United States history. Um, so tell us right off the bat why uh, reading your book will benefit the labor movement. 
certainly. And again, thank you so much for having me. First of all, generally, I think history is very important, uh, certainly to understand power relations. And uh, the labor movement has benefited greatly from learning about the history of, of labor and strikes and, and, and unions and whatnot. But I think we need to know a lot about the folks at the top of society, the folks who have made the lives of ordinary people miserable. And I mean very miserable. Uh, we must uh, know about the, the roots of anti-union ideas as well as anti-union practices. Okay, and so many of your listeners certainly know about this idea of the right to work and open shop and, you know, the, this flowery language designed to make anti-unionism appealing. A lot of those ideas are really rooted in the late 19th century, the period that I look at. And I think it's important to kind of track it and understand it. And so I want to look at how these folks, you know, saw unions as a problem and tried to get ordinary people to share that view. I also want to under, uh, folks to understand the ruthlessness with which the ruling class has employed violence, violent techniques to get its way. And I'm talking about uh, firings and blacklistings and whippings and kidnappings, drive out operations and uh, incarceration and even murder. We know that exploitation is built into capitalism, but I want to make a case that terrorism is too. And I also want to make the case that we need to rescue the word terrorism from the Islamophobes in our society. Um, we need to look at these people as not just the great inventors and entrepreneurs, many of them were, but also as folks who got their own hands dirty and, and made lives, the lives of ordinary people miserable. So I think it's important. We look at the late 19th, early 20th century. There are two things going on here. Number one, the United States became the dominant economic powerhouse. And number two, its anti-labor repression was more uh, widespread than in other industrialized countries. And those two things are absolutely related. You mentioned three business association models. The, there was the Ku Klux Klan. That was the first business association. Tell us how this business association formed. Certainly. So I uh, look back at the period of the Civil War. Now, many scholars who write about the Civil War write about the great battles and whatnot. But I'm interested in the enslaved people themselves and how they withdrew their labor power and went on what the famous black scholar W.B. Du Bois called a general strike. Right? We're talking about three to four million stopping to work. Thousands of those people took up arms and defended themselves. An absolutely transformative event. And so then the question becomes, the, the old plantation ruling class, what do they do? Well, they get organized in the aftermath of the Civil War and build vigilante organizations, including the notorious Ku Klux Klan. Unlike other writers, I argue that the Ku Klux Klan was a white supremacist employers association. I'm less interested in hate, though, of course, many of these people were hateful, and I'm more interested in labor control and exploitation. Right? You have these former enslaved people leaving the plantations, leaving the kitchens, and Klansmen go and they kidnap, and they force them back, um, and they push out you know, outside teachers. They don't want African Americans to read. They want them to do one thing during their waking hours, shut up and work. And so uh, I'm interested in the, uh, the political economy of racism and the relationship between vigilantism and management, and I think the Klan is a good case study to sort of make that point. Yes, and you even mentioned in the book that one of the 
aristocrats or the plantation owners, uh, the schedule for their workers had been 12 to work till 12 midnight and up at 4 a.m. Right. So that that's work hard. That's work hard. Work that's hard. right. So Absolutely. tell so our, your next chapter has talked about the law and order leagues. How did they differ? How did, uh, how were they different from the Klan? And I hear uh, through your book, through reading it, that Missouri's role in inventing the law and order leagues w was great. <laughs> yes, you must be proud. Oh, uh, no. So. <laughs> <laughs> the Law and Order Leagues really emerged in the mid-1880s, uh, chiefly in response to the Great Southwest Railroad Strike. Its birthplace, according to most sources, was Sedalia, Missouri, right? What is that, an hour and a half away from Kansas City? Yes. And, uh, and, and it's, uh, one of its major leaders was a guy by the name of J. West Goodwin, who ran a newspaper, the Sedalia Bazoo. And uh, he was he had a lot of problems with his his printers uh, and uh, constantly firing people, refusing to recognize their union. Uh, but then he was also very active in fighting Knights of Labor um, members who struck against Jay Gould's great um, uh, railroad empire. And uh, the Law and Order Leagues uh, were a vigilante group. They took up guns. They uh, intimidated strikers and assisted uh, uh, scabs uh, cross picket lines. And uh, Goodwin, as a newspaper owner, was able to use his publication to disseminate information about this, you know, the, the evils of unions and Martin Irons, the, the union leader of the, the Knights of Labor from Sedalia. And so, um, uh, so very effective. Then these, these Law and Order Leagues spread. Uh, they're in uh, Parsons, Kansas. They're in St. Louis. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure they were in Kansas City as well. Businessmen, vigilante organizations where they uh, uh, participate in various forms of, of union busting and strike breaking. Yes, and then it went to the citizens' committees and citizens' alliances. How, how did they operate? Absolutely. So um, I think uh, maybe some of your listeners are familiar with this phenomenon known as astroturfing, right? That is this notion that, uh, you know, the, it looks like it might be from the grassroots, but it's really top down. Citizens alliances. These were businessmen-led. They were basically employers' associations that were um, involved in really sh uh, link rhetorically presenting themselves as very respectable um, uh, members of the community. And uh, there were citizens alliances all over the country, and they came together nationally in a group called the Citizens Industrial Association of America in 1903. J. West Goodwin from the Law and Order Leagues was one of the, the organizers of it, as well as Klansmen, uh, former Klansmen from the 1860s, were also participants. But they broke strikes, they busted unions, but they did it on, with, using the language of reform and progress, the idea of the open shop. Um, in an earlier period in the 19th century, anti-union activists talked about fighting the dangerous classes. The Citizens Alliances talked about protecting the common people. Who were the common people? The common people were the, the scabs, the non-union workers, and the small business people. So the framing was very progressive. Stylistically, it was different, but in terms of substance, it was very similar. We see, and we see the continuity of thuggery, right? Uh, the, the various union bustings and the blacklisting and the strike breaking continued well into what I consider the misnamed progressive era.
Yes, and you, in, within your book, you surely describe the violence that was used um, against immigrants, workers, and blacks throughout the whole mm-hmm. book. Yeah. And, yes. and all of that was done in secrecy. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So uh, talk about the character of Owen Wister and his writings about the West. Now, the theme, he wrote wrote the book, The Virginian, which was our theme song tonight. That's right. Uh, Owen Wister was um, on the, the propaganda committee of the Citizens Industrial Association of America after he published his world famous book, The Virginian, which depicts cowboy culture in the West uh, in a way that um, that legitimizes the big landowners. Now, why do you have to legitimize the big landowners? The reason is because the, the Virginian is loosely based on what's called the Johnson County War in 1892, when these rich stock growers attacked these homesteaders in Johnson County, Wyoming. And, this, and they killed some people. And this was a huge public relations disaster for the stock growers for the for the ruling class in Wyoming. Owen Wooster was friends with these people, and he he learned about this war, uh, the so-called war, from their vantage point, and he wanted to uh, write about it in a way that would, um, you know, what what Malcolm X once said, turn the victim into the criminal and the criminal into the victim, right? Really uh, legitimize them in a new way, and so the Virginian became. A best-selling book. It, uh, it 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 really established the genre of of Western writing, and it really emphasized individualism uh, and respect for property owners, uh, anti-rustlers. Now, that's that basic message is very compatible with the emerging anti-union open shop movement. So Worcester would also write magazine articles uh, celebrating the goodness of, of, of scabs. He referred to scabs as, as, as virtuous as the American revolutionaries um, and uh, was very um, was a, a great person to have from the perspective of the uh, union busters on their, their payroll because he was such an influential uh, figure. And so um, I, I can imagine that people who read this stuff would be more inclined to, you know, side with the with the bosses and the employers literature had that role at that time in the way you know that um, that tv did would later yeah Uh, so with all these powerful forces against unions um and putting out there that the individual way is the best way how can labor combat this propaganda is what we'd really have to say that it appears to be. Yeah, education, radio shows like yours, um, right? I, I don't know if I have any very original answer, but certainly, um, you know, to build consciousness about these folks, to establish confidence in organization. Uh, nothing more important than solidarity, right? The ruling class has their solidarity. They have their networks and organizations and workers must come together and not fall for the rhetoric of right to work and open shop because these people were, you know, they were narrative creators, right? They 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 used literature and newspapers to disseminate their idea, and it's their ideas. Excuse me, and it's important, I think, that uh, that our side uh, have our uh, counter, our organizations as well. Um, I think you know, uh, 
the, the, the work that I'm doing here is I just I really want to expose uh, the ruling class thugs uh, at a minimum want to show that they're not our allies. And so I see myself playing a modest role in trying to to highlight their nefarious deeds. Um, and so that's uh, that that's some progress, I suppose. So you have a part in your book, too, where you draw connections between the January 6th actions, uh, 2023, with the violence perpetrated by the ruling elites. So uh, how do you talk a little bit about that with the idea that we have about two minutes left? Sure. Um, the January 6th insurrection was not an anti-labor campaign, but the participants were elites. Uh, it, they were from privilege in general. A lot of right-wing figures who, like the Klan from the 1860s, honored the Confederate flag and believed that violence was a way to achieve their goals. Uh, in that general sense, they were similar to the, to the terrorists I write about in the late 19th and early 20th century. So... Um... Also, I have to tell our listeners that the, your book has beautiful pictures of some of these villains. <laughs> and I have to ask you, who was your favorite evil villain, villain from villain. the elites? Um, it's it's so hard to pick. I know, I know. Well, there's there's one guy who was involved in kidnapping and bringing folks to Honduras. Um, his name was... Uh, uh, um, McKay, but I think my favorite was Goodwin, who we, I talked about earlier, yeah. because he was so influential. Missouri's own J. West Goodwin, uh, who was instrumental in building the Law and Order Leagues in the 1880s and instrumental in building the Citizens Alliances nationally in, uh, in the, uh, the turn of the century. Um, and he got his butt kicked a few times, right, um, for uh, writing critically about these women actresses. They literally went to his office and whipped him. Um, I like that. And uh, his, his uh, print shop finally got recognized. They, he, uh, his workers finally won a closed shop in 1907. Persistence pays off. These people are not um, super powerful all the time. So Okay, well... Uh, much thanks. We are out of time. Um, Missouri does it again, huh? Uh, so <laughs> thank you so much, uh, Chad, for telling the truth about the use of terrorism, uh, which thwart thwarted union progress and the ability for every working person to have decent, fair wages and benefits. Chad Pearson is the author. The book is Capital's Terrorist, Klansman, Klansmen, employers, and lawmen. Uh, got that in the reverse order. Perhaps it would be good to have this book in every union hall. Thanks so much. Our you have been listening to the Heartland Labor Forum, a show by and about workers, our workplaces, and our labor movement. We are radio that talks back to the boss. Tune in every Thursday evening at 6 or to our rebroadcast Friday mornings at 5 right here, 90.1 FM. We still got our Because we are the working class and that's the place to be. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two.
On this day in labor history, the year was 1908. That was the day that three labor leaders of the American Federation of Labor, Samuel Coppers, John Mitchell, and Frank Morrison, were sentenced to jail terms for calling for a boycott against the Bucks Stove and Range Company. Bucks was headquartered in St. Louis. The company was notorious for being anti-union. The company's president, James Van Cleve, was president of the National Association of Manufacturers, which fought unions at every turn. In 1907, Van Cleve increased the workday from 9 to 10 hours for some of the Bucks workers. The workers went out on strike. In response, the AFL put Bucks on their We Do Not Patronize list. For that, the company asked the federal courts to intervene. Bucks argued that the boycott violated the Sherman Antitrust Act. The court issued an injunction. The AFL was told not to communicate about a boycott of Bucks. They were not even allowed to criticize the company in any way. The AFL leaders were also convicted and given prison terms. The AFL appealed and the case languished through the court system until 1914. In the end, the U.S. Supreme Court dismissed the charges. Because so much time had gone by, it was past the statute of limitations. But the court did not answer the fundamental question of whether the boycott was legal in the first place. The long, expensive legal battle was a drain on the AFL's finances. Boycotts are an important tool for working people to register protests. Labor has long argued that the right to boycott is protected by the First Amendment's right to free speech. It's not surprising, however, that company owners will do anything they can to limit the power of workers. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 2008. That was the day that Walmart stores agreed to settle 63 wage and hour lawsuits across 42 states for at least $352 million and possibly as much as $640 million. Walmart and Sam's Clubs were accused of failing to pay overtime, requiring workers to work off the clock, erasing hours from time cards, and preventing workers from taking meal and rest breaks as guaranteed by state law. The lawsuits involved hundreds of thousands of then current and former employees. You'd think they would have learned their lesson after having to shell out that amount of money. In fact, they have had to settle at least seven more class action wage and hour lawsuits and remain a defendant in dozens more. By 2012, Walmart had settled at least nine Equal Employment Opportunity Commission cases related to disability, gender, racial and religious discrimination in hiring and and sexual harassment. Egregious labor violations have persisted throughout their stores. Systematic wage theft, health and safety dangers, and abusive conditions on the job have continued for years. Chronic short staffing creates unsafe working conditions. In 2012 alone, they were repeatedly cited and fined by OSHA for serious violations such as blocked emergency exits, lack of safety procedures for control of power hazards, and other problems. Employees who worked with our Walmart organizers often found they were targeted with threats, reduction in hours, and terminations. More recently, Walmart has had to settle a discrimination suit over health insurance benefits for same-sex spouses. The high cost of labor violations and the low wages at Walmart cost taxpayers on average $6.2 billion a year in public assistance for many of their workers.
that's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better, if you like what you hear, sure hope you do. Like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Very special thanks this week to the Heartland Labor Forum. That's a radio show that covers issues for working people from the local to the international, including labor organizing and law, economic justice, and human rights. Radio that talks back to the boss. The Heartland Labor Forum airs Thursdays at 6 p.m., Fridays at 5 a.m. Central Time on KKFI 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio, or you can search for it wherever you listen to podcasts. Our music was the theme song from the Virginian television show written by Percy Faith. The show aired on NBC from 1962 to 1971. Labor History Today is produced by the Labor Heritage Foundation and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. You can keep up with all the latest labor arts news. Subscribe to the Labor Heritage Foundation's weekly newsletter at laborheritage.org. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Keep making history and see you next time.